Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hold on there, partner. We'll be right back. But right now, time for Tales from the Mean Streets. With Genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode 10, Human Bomb. Welcome to Mission Law Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week, we comb through the early television writing of Gene Roddenberry years before he created a little thing we call Star Trek. This week, we're once again riding shotgun with The Highway Patrol, a 1950s cop show that Gene wrote five scripts for under the pen name of Robert Wesley. I'll be back to detonate a trivia bomb in your ears, but first, Norm's going to tell you how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter and Facebook, at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, here is Earl Green with this week's trivia. Thank you, Norm. Again, with Highway Patrol, the episodes can be viewed because this is a series that was on print on DVD a while back and occasionally showed up in reruns on cable channels specializing in retro programming. Its original air date was in late February 1956, though IMDb shows a 1955 air date, which is incorrect. But here is something interesting. Assuming it aired in, say, the last week of February 1956, that would place Human Bomb's air date about one week before the premiere of The Secret Weapon of 117. Guest starring as Jay Dedrick, though various characters throughout the show pronounce his name as Dedrick and Dietrich, is actor William Vaughn, who was near the beginning of his on-screen acting career here. He was practically a regular on the Ziv lot, also racking up guest-starring roles in such Ziv shows as Science Fiction Theater, Bat Masterson, Harbor Command, Sea Hunt, I Led Three Lives, and The Cisco Kid. You may also have seen him playing guest roles in episodes of Mod Squad, Kung Fu, The Magician, as in the early 70s show starring Bill Bixby, and the original version of SWAT, Starsky and Hutch, and Fantasy Island. William also guest-starred twice on Have Gun, Will Travel, but not in any of the episodes that Gene wrote for that series. Now, on the other hand, Morgan Jones, who played Sergeant Corey in this installment of Highway Patrol, did go on to join the Roddenberry rep, appearing in a small part in the Star Trek episode Assignment Earth. Script-wise, what we have here is labeled the final master script, dated October 24th, 1955, but... I noticed that there were yellow pages with the note revised November 4th, 1955, and blue pages revised November 16th, 1955. So again, the different color pages denote successive revisions. But there is evidence of further changes, perhaps even made on location during filming. In scene 82 of the script, the suspect just turned right on Roddenberry Road. Oh no, Gene, no you didn't. And yes, he didn't, because in the final broadcast show, it's suddenly just Barry Road. Honestly, that's kind of a relief, because for one terrible moment, I thought I was going to have to let everybody off the hook for Metallus Prime. It just goes to show you that a final master script is kind of like, say, a last, best, and final offer. Not sure where I've heard that phrase recently. It's not the last or final anything until everyone involved is on board with it being the last one. Here endeth the lesson.
Problems? Don't know yet. Could be a crank call, could be a four-wheel bomb headed down Highway 11 for the city. Who is it? It's a neurotic electrical engineer, according to the call. 3224 is picking up his brother-in-law. We're meeting him halfway. How much time we got? We haven't got any, unless the roadblock slows him down. Dan Matthews of the California Highway Patrol takes on cases where criminals may be on the move or on the run and brings them back to face justice. This is just one of his cases on the Highway Patrol. Act 1. Jay Dedrick is walking down a very typical sidewalk through a very typical neighborhood on a very typical day. However, unless one was paying close attention to him, Jay is walking with a bit more speed and purpose than many may realize, and when he does take a moment to pause in between determined strides, it's because he needs to make sure the contents in the oversized paper bag he's carrying aren't seen by prying eyes, especially those who would recognize the barrel of a shotgun that is peeking out of the bag's opening. Focused on getting to his destination, Jay walks right past the neighborhood automobile service station and either accidentally or purposefully ignores Bernie, who was in the middle of taking care of a customer while desperately trying to get Jay's attention. Jay finally makes it to his garage across the street from Bernie's station and hurries to lift the garage door, which causes him to fumble the contents of his paper bag, revealing several parts of a disassembled shotgun. Bernie can't make out what Jay was scrambling to scoop up and hide, but it was concerning enough for him to run across the street and try and figure out what is going on inside Jay's garage. Making his way to a side window, Bernie peers in and is shocked to find Jay inside the garage, surrounded by boxes marked VHE, as in very high explosives. As Jay walks to and from his workstation to his car, Bernie watches in terror as Jay straps together a handful of these explosives and places them inside the car at the end of a device which is outfitted with a cradle just long enough to hold a shotgun. Bernie knows exactly what Jay is planning because, being his brother-in-law, Bernie knows that Jay has never been the same since he was fired from work nine months ago. Bernie pleads with Jay to stop before his plan goes too far, but Jay methodically continues finalizing the last components to bring his car bomb online. Specifically, ratcheting a live shell in the shotgun's barrel, which he points directly at the explosives. The shotgun's trigger is wired to a dead man switch, which is taped to the steering wheel. After taking stock of what Jay has invented, Bernie races back to his service station and frantically calls the highway patrol, which is redirected to Matthews at his desk, who tries to make sense out of Bernie's deluge of emotions and details about what he's just observed. However, while Matthews is deciding whether or not Bernie's call is credible, Jay drives away in his mobile bomb, which Matthews soon confirms is carrying stolen army ordnance from three months ago, and not just sticks, but cases of explosives. Matthews and Sergeant Rand, his second-in-command at Highway Patrol headquarters, review their maps to place blockades where they believe they can box in Jay Dedrick and neutralize the catastrophic damage his explosive automobile can achieve. With his crime lab explosives expert Harry Sellers in tow, Matthew rendezvous with Unit 3224, who has brought Bernie to help with stopping Jay's plan. Bernie shows Matthews a diagram taken from Jay's garage and how the car bomb is wired and how the dead man switch that is gripped tightly in Jay's hand is the trigger. Once it is released, the bomb goes off. Bernie believes that Jay is headed to the chemical plant where he was fired nine months ago to take his revenge on those who ruined his life. And Bernie makes Matthews well aware of the one thing he knows about his brother-in-law. Whatever he builds works and without fail. After testing several sticks of the explosive, Harry comes to the terrifying conclusion that not only are the explosives three times the power of normal dynamite, but packed in cases and in a car, the shrapnel from the explosion could put hundreds of lives at risk, let alone the chemical plant chain reaction that could destroy the city's industrial district. Act 2. Plans are being made to make sure that the Roger chemical plant tanks are drained and that all personnel are evacuated to try and reduce the amount of catastrophic fallout 
from Tedrick's car bomb if it reaches its destination. Civil Defense has issued a citywide red alert and all units of the Highway Patrol have been placed on alert, leaving Matthews with a very thin coverage to try and intercept Dedrick's car. As Matthews sets up his primary roadblock, he and his backup motorcycle unit secure their makeshift blockade of abandoned buses and trucks. Also, Matthews hands the officer his shotgun, ordering him to kill Dedrick if necessary to save the countless lives of those in and around the blast zone of the chemical plant. However, to Matthews, this is an act of last resort. He tells the officer and Harry that he will try to reason with Dedrick first and see if he can neutralize the dead man's switch once Dedrick is secured and in custody. However, just moments before Dedrick reached the blockade, he picks up a young hitchhiker who appears to be ditching school and is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. With schoolbooks in hand, the wide-eyed boy jumps in Dedrick's car and takes a look at the shotgun in the back seat and the explosives packed in and around the vehicle and tries to back out of taking the ride. But Dedrick has other plans for him. The boy has now become his hostage and leverage against the highway patrol, and Dedrick, when stopped at gunpoint at the blockade, threatens to blow up the car and his unwilling and innocent passenger if Matthews and his officers don't let him pass. But Matthews makes sure that Dedrick thinks about one very important matter. He's not a killer. Suicide is one thing. Taking the boy with him is another. And with that, Matthews orders the blockade to be moved, and Dedrick speeds off through it and towards another route and back towards the chemical plant. Matthews and his dispatcher at HQ frantically radio each other back and forth as they redirect units across town to try and intercept Dedrick as he is barreling forward with his hostage towards finalizing his revenge at the chemical plant. Matthews knows that his resources are stretched too thin with a neighborhood evacuation and securing the areas around the industrial district. Not enough units are available to patrol the highways leading in and out of town, so Matthews has no choice but to leave Harry in charge of the blockade if Dedrick tries to double back, meaning Matthews will have to confront Dedrick alone and with no backup. Meanwhile, at the edge of town, Jay Dedrick looks at the terrified boy and realizes that even though he's bluffed his way past the blockade moments earlier, that Matthews was right. He wasn't a killer, and wasn't prepared to blow up the car with an innocent boy inside. For whatever reason, this gave Dedrick pause enough to finally regain his senses and let the boy go. Dedrick's resolve is finally starting to wane, and just as Matthews catches up with him and blocks his only escape route, Dedrick falls apart and breaks down in a fit of tears, realizing his mistake. This gives Matthews the one chance he needs to secure the dead man's switch, but Dedrick reacts like a cornered animal and fights desperately to wrest the switch back from Matthews, who finally overpowers Dedrick just enough for the motorcycle officer to place Dedrick in handcuffs and for Harry to disarm the shotgun and the bomb. After Matthews lets go of the dead man's switch, his nerves finally get the better of him as his shaking hands get in the way of lighting his cigarette shaking hands that he explains to Harry that one shouldn't feel ashamed about. Matthews deflects Harry's question about exactly how he was able to apprehend Dedrick, knowing that the only way to stop a human bomb was to do so head-on. To which Matthews says, Don't start that story going around. I don't want everybody thinking I'm a crazy fool. The end. Good job, Norm. I think you successfully defused the human bomb there. You know, I couldn't help but notice that there is an interesting parallel between the opening voiceover. It's not Matthews who says it. It's the show's narrator, you know, kind of the omniscient voice who introduces every episode. He says, Every criminal is dangerous, but most dangerous of all is the criminal whose only motive is hate, the one who will sacrifice his own life to take another. And my brain instantly went to a line from a certain other show that I know you and I are both big fans of. Namely, an episode of Babylon 5 where Sheridan says, Our new friend just said all the security in the world can't stop a lone gunman dedicated to exchanging his life for the target. And he is right. I do remember watching Dedrick walk down the sidewalk with that voiceover happening. And I can't help but feel like 
that I was being maneuvered into thinking a certain way towards a certain character that I actually had no information about. Aside from the fact that he is wearing a strange upturned fedora and a leather jacket and carrying a bag with a shotgun piece in it. But it felt a little forced, to be honest with you. You know, it felt like this is a bad guy. Treat him like a bad guy. And for a Gene Roddenberry script, it didn't feel as ambiguous enough for me to not be able to make my own decision about the the chain of events that will lead us into hopefully a moral meaning or message. But we'll get into that later. Did you think that? Did you think that you were just being maneuvered too easily, too quickly at the beginning of this episode to think that this guy was a bad guy? Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of front loading it. Yeah, there and and like you said, you know this this is something that we'll be talking about more in the next segment or two. But there's not a lot of nuance here. There's not a lot of subtlety. Yeah, that's a big sticking point, I think, for both of us. And we'll get it. We'll probably get to that like later on in the discussion. But I just wanted to go back to the opening credits for a second. So. I didn't notice this with Reformed Criminal, which was the episode that we covered last week, you know, for genealogy, but the scenes that were used in the montage of Highway Patrol are scenes from this episode. And I didn't get that from Reformed Criminal, but I don't know if it was an era-specific thing or if it was just something from this production, but uh, it reminded me a lot of, say, Space 1999 where you would see this episode, then all of a sudden you would see like very exciting shots of the internal scenes of the episode before you even started watching it. Do you think that uh, Frederick Zev and Zev Productions did it in this way just to make the episode engaging so that their audience wouldn't change the channel? That's, that's one very valid reason to do it. If you spent money on pyro, go ahead and show the explosions really early. Wow, there's going to be explosions in this episode. I am sticking around. Yeah, just like when I was watching it, I'm like, okay, you're showing some of the really meaty scenes here, like really nice high-intensity production scenes. But again, uh, unless we actually get a chance and, and the opportunity to talk to somebody who watched this in real time, you don't really get a sense of why they would just decide to do this particular thing. In the cast synopsis, like in the first page of the script, uh, we see a Sergeant Rand he was Matthews, kind of like second command at in in the uh, in the synopsis. I said HPHQ Highway Patrol headquarters because I was being clever. Not really, but I'm wondering if Rand was somebody that Gene actually knew, and if that translated later on into Star Trek: The Original Series as a name he would use for Yeoman Janice Rand. Well, I hate to diffuse another human bomb on you, but we do see Sergeant Rand in later episodes of this show. So he may actually be part of the show format. Ah, 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 ah. Whoever created the show, who was... Gene did not create the show. This show was created before Gene was on board, and he just came in as a freelancer pitching scripts and stories. Whoever created the show may have created the character of Sergeant Rand. Scene 10 and the script, which... uh, One thing I'm really loving about Highway Patrol is that we can see the episodes... We're not just working from the script. But this lets us kind of compare and contrast. The stage directions for scene 10. Close shot, Bernie at the window, registering at what he sees. As he's looking in at Jay building the contraption. This is kind of an interesting departure from some of Gene's Mr. District Attorney scripts, where he was practically directing from the script. Here he seems to be leaving some interpretation up to the actor and director and trusting their instincts. And I found myself wondering if this was a change in Ziv policy, like, you know, please let our directors do their own directing. That's a really good point. I remember when we were doing Patrol Boat, there were very specific notes that Gene left on his script saying, this is what you should do. These are like kind of like the nautical directions that need to be followed and adhered to strictly in order to convey the the message of authenticity. And uh, I think that... There's a very clumsy aspect to some of this script where Bernie is, uh, and, and and I know that it's great that people can watch this now because like Bernie is like yelling through like this pane glass window, which literally you should not be muffled by because it's literally paper thin. And he's watching Jay do what he's doing. He's watching Jay like assemble like the shotgun component of his car bomb and move like boxes of explosives to and fro from like his countertop to his car 
there's a lot going on. And I'm like, why are they chewing up so much time showing kind of like the, the minutia of this scene? Because it just seems that they are padding so much right now in the script to caveat what I'm saying for a Gene Roddenberry script. It seems a little insulting as an audience member watching this. Now, I don't know if that's the case for like an audience member from 1955. Is it Earl script written in late 55? The show aired in February of 56, right? So it just seems like even for episodes that we've seen Gene Roddenberry do for like Mr. District Attorney. And then obviously for reformed criminal, which we both really like critically loved. It just seems that this scene was so academic, I guess, there's just so much going on with the scene where it felt like, let's move this along because we're running out of time and we're not really getting to a story point here or any kind of foreshadowing to a potential story point. That being said, though, I do kind of like the whole the Rube Goldberg uh, assembly of the human bomb. Like, OK, the shotgun's going to go here. The dynamite's going to go here. We're going to wire in the dead man switch here. You know, and all of a sudden, okay, here it goes. Let's release the marble and see what happens. You know, let's see if, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a burrito gets made and all, and it gets dumped. And all of a sudden, you know, like, you know, uh, Einstein's like dog food from back to the future gets spilled and then the marble keeps going. And then now we're going to get to the human bomb kind of thing. Like, I thought that was well done, even though that entire scene was maybe a little too long. Well, there's almost a whole page of the script very early on describing how the dead man switch is set up and describing, you know, how the contraption in the back of the truck is set up. There's a lot of detail there. And it's like, Gene, buddy, how do you know how to do this? Mm, Good point. Another funny thought I had about the script. And this also applies to reformed criminal. You could not remake these shows now as written. You, You just can't because one cell phone call and shows over three minutes in. Frank Bacali calls the co-op manager. Hey, I've been in a wreck. Problem solved. Roll credits. Bernie sees Jay building the bomb. Calls 911. Roll credits. Written by Robert Wesley. Short show this week, everyone. It just seemed kind of funny to think about uh, in terms of modernizing any of this. It, it almost makes no sense outside of the era of the landline telephone. And I think like when you really ask the question, why is Bernie calling the highway patrol for a bomb? I know that the show is called Highway Patrol. I get that, right? But why would he be calling just the Highway Patrol law enforcement for a guy who's concocting kind of like a garage-style bomb? I mean, I get it. It makes sense like when you know he, he, he takes off and it's in his car, but it's like, hmm, there's a guy that has like a huge amount of ridiculously like illegal ordinance in his garage. I think I'll call the flower shop. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, like it just it seems out of place, doesn't it? Depends on where the town is, because one thing I have noticed in both of these episodes of Highway Patrol is that the setting is kind of rural in some rural areas of the United States, and this includes places that I have lived. The state police or the Highway Patrol, which are somewhat interchangeable terms, they are the authority because there is no police department covering that jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And so all you have to call is the state police or the Highway Patrol. That is something they state up front in the opening narration of the show. I also got to chuckle a little bit later on, you know, at 55 miles per hour, it's 18 minutes to the city on Highway 11. Okay, so two things. This led me down a rabbit hole of what was the speed limit in 1955, because I thought the 55 mile per hour speed limit didn't happen until the 70s. And that's both correct and incorrect. It turns out there was no national speed limit in 1955. You did not get that as a nationwide speed limit until the 70s. At the time this show was written and produced, states set their own speed limits. And in some cases, especially, again, in these rural areas, these long stretches of highway, there was no posted speed limit. That brings me to another point. Jay Dedrick is driving a mobile bomb. The whole car is a bomb. I think there is a strong implication here, maybe just a slight hint here and there. He intends to break some laws. So it seems like a failure of imagination to imagine that he's not also going to break some traffic laws and go really fast, unless you're assuming that he's going to try not to draw suspicion 
by doing that? Yeah, that again, that, that leads into the the different departments, I think, for law enforcement that need to be involved with not only Jay Dedrick and his car bomb, but what he's about to do, what Bernie says to Matthew is that he's about to you know, go after this chemical plant for laying him off you know, from a job that he's been working for for his entire life. There's so much going on there, right, that it's just more than this guy is just going to drive a, a human bomb car around and explode somewhere. There are certain things, though, in this uh, in this episode that I find like refreshing almost in, in a very old school kind of way. Since people are watching this with us, I'm going to timestamp six minutes, 23 seconds in. I find this scene to be incredibly fascinating. There are these wonderful displays of paper maps across this kind of like giant wall corkboard where Sergeant Rand and, and uh, Matthews are looking at how are we going to stop Jay? you know, from, uh, getting to, you know, to, to the city that's as high tech as it gets for like 1955, right? No computer screens, no overlay displays, like, you know, no cellophane map. Just, it's just paper maps, right? And there are large paper maps. And for some odd reason, I dig that. We are 10 years before Batman's giant lighted Lucite map of Gotham right? city. Gene is kind of tipping his hand between this episode and the last episode with, with Formed Criminal where he has an actual diagram in his script. He must really love maps and diagrams. I have a strong feeling about that. Now, I do think that he missed a trick in the second act. You know, when the kid's trying to hitch a ride, you know, how far are you going? Far enough. It, why didn't Dedrick just say, get in, kid? It'll be a blast. That's so good, dude. That's why I'm not a television writer. <laughs> I found it very interesting that we highlighted the civil defense red alert. You mentioned this in your uh, synopsis. Boy, you talked about a time capsule where it was very prevalent because at a time before intercontinental ballistic missiles, it was assumed that World War III would start with long-range Russian bombers crossing the North Pole to drop nukes on us, and then there would be a ground invasion and the civil defense they would have to find a, a different kind of animal other than wolverines to shout, you know, as they tried to mount a resistance. The local civil defense organizations would have to mobilize in the event that a centralized U.S. government no longer existed. When ICBMs became a thing and World War II was no longer envisioned as being a thing where bombers would spend a few hours to get here and there'd be a lot of warning, you know, death from above us now minutes away, civil defense kind of switched from we're going to defend our homeland to being a disaster planning thing because there was not going to be time to do anything but flip the switch that started up those big yellow thunderbolt sirens to sound the alarm. But in 1955, something like this event would have been a civil defense concern. It's interesting that you bring this up in, in such detail because in the script, and, and certainly in the episode, it was kind of standard operating procedure. You know, the highway patrol is notified that something was about to happen. They see the escalation and the scale of kind of like the devastation that was going to happen from the car bomb, you know, the bomb, the, uh, the shrapnel hitting this, you know, chemical plant and, you know, civil authorities or the civil defense had to be engaged. And maybe for the 1950s, you know, 1955, that reference was, it landed probably stronger than it does now. Yeah. Civil defense was very much a at its peak, was very much a Cold War thing. There's a big fight scene between Matthews and Jay at the end that's staged pretty well. I was kind of surprised by that part, but there were also some things in there that made me laugh because they keep taking Jay Dedrick's lines and looping them. Like, there's there's a very distinct, there's a very distinctive, let go, let go, and it gets looped. He says it again, except it's more rapid fire. Let go, let go, let go, let go. And that gets looped repeatedly. And it just made me chuckle because, you know, it's ident it's literally identical. And it kind of reminded me of some weird dialogue looping at the end of Charlie X. Because they took random outbursts that were part of a sentence and just cut them up. And I guess they felt they needed to fill silence in that scene. I got a big laugh out of all of the ad-libbing around Dan Matthews trying to light a cigarette in a stiff breeze right after the fight. None of that is in the script. It, just leave it in the shows, guys. Cut and print. We've hit our 30 hours. While they are 
lighting up their smokes. Man, I'm glad that there's not like a bunch of sticks of dynamite just three feet away. You dropped a bomb on me. I know that's a lyric, but it kind of maybe describes a little bit how we feel about this episode. There's something that uh, I wanted to bring up really quickly, Earl, in our discussion. It may set the tone for the discussion. I'm not sure if it will. It may set the tone for our listeners. I'm not sure if it will. But I need to make sure that on the record, we – maybe I'll take this on the chin – that it's possible there are scripts out there from Gene Roddenberry that just don't land correctly. And I think this is one of them. I think that Human Bomb – may be a script that we've come across that might be the most devoid of his signature moral optimism that we've seen progressively mature in scripts that, you know, we started off with, with Mr. District Attorney and uh, in some of the episodes that uh, we've discussed with, even in Highway Patrol with Reformed Criminal and then The Secret Weapon of 117. I just don't think that this episode was in the tradition at least the finest traditions of Gene Roddenberry's writing. I felt that at times there were moments that his signature would peek through, but it just didn't come together for me. It's a good story. If I weren't comp- you know, comparing this with a Gene Roddenberry level of quality story. So that's a thing now. I think that's something we need to address. Well, it's still early days in his career. They can't all be a secret weapon of 117. Where are we timeline-wise now between Reformed Criminal, this episode, and the secret defense of 117? Because from my understanding, the stylization of Gene's writing are wildly different from these three scripts. We're not accounting for the fact that a script editor may have made changes. You know, see also yellow and blue pages. Chronologically speaking, we have two episodes of Highway Patrol, Reformed Criminal and Human Bomb, that we have kind of vague air dates for Reformed Criminal airing in late 1955, Human Bomb airing in February 1956. Then on March 6th, 1956... We have the Chevron Hall of Stars premiere of The Secret Defense of 117. And then it's about a month before Gene's next Highway Patrol script. They can't all be winners, especially not when this is not his day job. He does not have all of his energy to devote to it. Sometimes, you know, you said it was a good story, just not a good Gene story. And I get where you're coming from there. Sometimes you get it to where it's good enough, get it to where the show will buy it, and hope to do better on the next one. We have grown up kind of spoiled by the age of the 20 to 26 episode season, which has a certain number of, you know, big keyframe episodes, you know, to use a bit of video editing jargon, you know, where big things happen. And then there's some filler and there's some episodic stuff in between. And some of the standalone stories were not always great in the days of the 20-plus episode season. Here this is a show with a 30-plus episode season, so I'm going to say that probably barred across to sell a script for Highway Patrol, given that they had to crank out 30-plus episodes a year, probably significantly lower than some of the shows that we grew up with. However, I was able to do a little bit of a reach, and I will admit, dear listeners, this is a bit of a reach, and come up with something interesting from a line in this script. Jay's whole life was wrapped up in that company. He was one of their first employees. And let me tell you a thing that I have learned the very hard way. You have to do something Somehow you have to uncouple your identity and your self-worth from your job. I know that's hard to do in American society. I was in one business for a very long time, over 20 years in fact, 
And I did that exact same thing. My whole self-worth was tied up in how well I was doing that job. And then two things happened. I had a kid who I very quickly realized was my best work. And I left work for a while to be a stay-at-home dad and then got back into that business only to be laid off a couple of years later because the location where I was working was shut down. There was another job in the same field, literally same job description that I had already been doing for years at one of the competitors. So I applied thinking that my experience, my obvious qualifications would get me in the door without any question, but they didn't. And suddenly I was out of this business that I'd been in for more than two decades. I was seriously adrift. So there is something here in the character of Jay Dedrick that I can relate to. And like Jay Dedrick, I was angry. I wasn't turned my car into a bomb angry, but work cannot be the sole objective of your life, and we really need to make some societal adjustments so that that is not an absolute necessity. Like, if I am not employed, I will die. That should not be a thing. I feel like there's kind of an unshown, unspoken message about mental health and seeking counseling here. But it's probably unspoken and unshown because due to the masculinity code that we've discussed in quite a few genealogy episodes past, that would of course be seen ridiculously as some kind of sign of weakness or being less than a man in this era of American history. Matthew's line, when he is finally able to let go of the dead man's switch, you know, funny thing, even when a man's hand's got a right to shake, he's still ashamed of it. Matthews, why are you ashamed? You almost died there, and not in a quiet or pleasant way. I would be scared out of my wits, too. When he stops Jay, Jay is a wreck. He's sobbing. The man needs help. And I feel like something that is missing in a big way here is an acknowledgement that we are going to try to help this man and not just put him away. He's obviously a bright and hardworking, but very disturbed man, but... If he finds a new place of security with his employment status and the fact that he's not going to starve or wind up being homeless, then he can get back to, as his brother-in-law put it, building stuff that always works the first time. But there is no hint of any of this anywhere in this script. He just gets a couple of knuckle sandwiches from Broderick Crawford. And, you know, apparently in the 50s, that's all the therapy a man can expect. And that's like my point about this being a good story, but not a gene script, because I think that where you're getting at, there are moments, there are these really interesting glimmers of promise where we could go into a little bit more of the struggle, the moral struggle and the personal and emotional struggle, you know, that Dedrick is, is trying to work through and that's what we wanted to see. I think that that's the thing that we as the audience, and I'm making a huge leap saying, you know, just universally, you know, saying that all of us, you know, we're watching this and this is what we wanted. I think for the people that expect a certain level of Gene Roddenberry style in a script like this, when you're watching it, you're expecting these things to happen. You're expecting kind of this resolution to take shape, you know, with Dedrick and maybe with Matthews in, in one point, but we don't get that. And I think that that's where this episode is a little disappointing because there's a lot of setup to what you said, Earl. I mean, there's a lot of setup to Dedrick's motivations. He dedicated his life to his work. He was there at Roger Chemicals from the very beginning. He probably created products and procedures that allowed this company to flourish and grow and become this financial power in their community but he was never recognized for it and for whatever reason was summarily let go. And that damaged his identity. And he didn't know what to do after that. Because when your identity is wrapped up in something that's intangible or out of your control, then what do you do? And I think that a lot of people out there are like this. I certainly was. You know, I worked for a company for 22 years. And when I left, I didn't know what my identity was because... Everything that I did, a majority of the decisions that I made, personal time that I lost was at the behest and the benefit of the company. So when you leave that, 
What does that say? Are you admitting that that was wrong? And if admitting that was wrong, then you go into the four pillars of the masculinity script of, well, I couldn't be wrong. The big wheel says I'm supposed to earn. We don't talk about it means there are no emotions involved. And being a man of action and adventure means that, well, I'm ready to take on the next best thing, the next big adventure, the next big challenge. So in recognizing that there was something wrong with Dedrick, with being fired, with losing his identity, that means that in terms of his masculinity, and especially in 1955, so much is being torn down about this character that what is he left with aside from two options, one being suicide and the other being salvation. But how does that salvation come? Does he know that there's going to be someone out there that's going to be able to fight for his side? Does he know that he's going to be able to pick up that hitchhiker, that young boy that's going to remind himself of himself, right? And say, I can't do this. I'm not that guy. And that's not what we're getting in this episode. That's not where we're even close to getting in this episode. But the thing is that the seeds of Gene's style are there. Yeah, it's disappointing that we don't get there. Yeah, you can see some of these potential story points peeking around the corner, waiting to happen. And when they don't happen, that's what makes this a really frustrating episode. If you're going into it waiting for your aha moment, like, ah, there's my boy, mm-hmm. there's, there's Gene doing what Gene does. But I think at this point in his career, Gene didn't always necessarily have the time or energy to bring everything in for the landing that he may have wanted to. I don't know if it's out there or if you have documentation of this or you know even a story that you've been able to research about maybe someone at Ziff Productions, maybe Frederick Ziff saying like, okay, Gene, you need to like streamline your, your scripts so that it, it services a greater audience. Because one of my big sticking points with this story is there's so much, and I'm gonna use a mission log reference here, there's so much teching tech in this episode that it steals a lot of time from deeper morals, meanings, and messages. Here's an example of, of what I'm talking about. So there's, there's a scene where dispatch broadcasts the message right after Matthews leaves to meet with Harry, his bomb tech dispatch says cars, three, eight, two, two, three, four, three, three, set up a roadblock at state 11. I want to go through the entire thing, but it's just, it's so minutia driven. It's just yada, yada, yada. Right. This may be another thing where Gene's making sure that Robert Wesley gets his consultant fee for the week. Right. right. Oh, you know, look at, look at all the correct police lingo in this script. I want to read this particular um, passage because just in a, it's an illustration of how much time was dedicated to very specific technical jargon, where technical jargon is taking the place of further delving into the emotional connectivity and and, and uh, maturity and development of the characters and the resolution that we didn't see. So there is a scene where, so Matthew's patrol car is number 2150. And 2150 says, are the police blocking the entrance to the city? And the radio dispatch says, city police report, industrial district evacuation, interfering with road efforts. 2150, 10-4, radio girl, 2150, watch officer request your location and plans. Matthew says, cutting to Eatsgate, you know, like there's, there are too many scenes that have to deal with this number, that number, this road, that road, this map, that map, this, this, that. And that in and of itself is so distracting for me that it completely misses the whole point of why you're telling the story in the first place. And for for me, it just seems so antithetical Gene Roddenberry. You know what I mean? It could be that... Gene originally had some of the points that, you know, we're sitting here watching this, hoping he's about to make. He may have had some of this stuff in the script and it got chucked back at him as, what is this sensitive guy stuff? You know, we're not going to talk about this guy needing help. We just need to beat him up and put him down. And with the time left to him to do revisions and after getting disheartening news like that, could be that this was his answer to, you know, okay, I've got to take this stuff out of the script. What do I use to build the script back up to the necessary time? Technobabble. Jargon. Police jargon. We're going to let Robert Wesley earn his writer's fee and his consultant's fee. But, I mean, are we under the impression that this is the kind of stuff that lands for the audience to pay more attention to 
you know, in a police procedural drama as opposed to, say, reformed criminal, where both you and I were like, wow, you know, when we actually see the story that's being told and the resolution, you know, with Frank Wood's character or Frank McCauley's character, that we see that you can tell both sides of the story when it comes to the procedural part and the moral implication and delving into kind of like the change and the shift and the character momentum. Because you can see that. That's the thing like, that drives me nuts about this episode. So you can see that going on, you know, with, with Jay Dedrick. There's a scene where he looks at that boy and like, that's the moment. Like, that's the moment where he's like, you know what? I'm not a bad guy. Matthew says that you're not a killer. This is not who you are. You're, a, you know, you're an egghead. You're an engineer. You're a brain guy. You're not a killer. And when he talks to that kid about like, you know, you're you're a science kid. You're a student that's t- studying science. It's like, you. this is me talking to me like 25 years ago. How did I get to this point? I can't kill this kid. And knowing that, it completely like disavows the voiceover of, you know, the narrator saying that this is the face of a killer. This is the face of a bad guy. I'm like, no, it's not. That's not going on at all. And I feel that that's where this huge, like, disjointed part of the of the series is coming into play. There is one trivia note that I have held off on putting in trivia because I'm not exactly sure which episode it applies to. Gene wrote five episodes of Highway Patrol. It is known from Gene's biography that one of his scripts was so heavily rewritten, not by him, that he became incensed and decided, okay, that's it. I'm going to become a producer. Not just a writer, but a producer. Beginning to climb through that hierarchy of how not to let your words get changed. You know, I'm going to go from writer to story editor. I'm going to go for, or staff writer. Staff writer to story editor. Story editor to producer. They're still changing my words. I'm going to become the executive producer. Somewhere in here, in one of these scripts... And maybe it's this one. The frustrating thing is I don't actually know which script it is. Somewhere in one of these scripts is the trigger that set off in Gene's mind, okay, I need to become a producer and then an executive producer so people will stop screwing around with my words. Other than that, I feel like Matthews could have had police car number 2112, but I guess he was in no rush. So this is that part of the recording. You know where we are. We're at the end, and we're going to take a look at all of what we've discussed here for Genealogy, Episode 10, Human Bomb. Did this drop the bomb on us, baby, or is this a completely different lyric altogether? We're going to start off with Earl. We're going to look at what we do here in, in Mission Log. We look at the morals and meanings and messages of these episodes. Did this land with us in a certain way? Did it not? I have a certain feeling that uh, in our discussions so far, it may have gone a certain way, but since we don't read each other's notes, Earl is here to let us know, did this have a specific message or moral of meaning that landed with you? Insert the uh, the clip of Bugs Bunny saying, no, sometimes there's no message, none whatsoever. And this is one of those cases. While we have the date on this script, I wish there was a date on the script for The Secret Weapon of 117, which aired mere days after Human Bomb, because I wonder if Gene's attention was perhaps a bit divided with simultaneous writing assignments, and Human Bomb lost out because he was really in love with what he was doing with this other script. It certainly seemed like his whole heart was in Secret Weapon, but in the case of Human Bomb, it doesn't read much like what we would expect from one of Gene's scripts. That minor piece of trivia about the removed mention of Roddenberry Road does tell me that revisions were also handed in by Gene and not rewritten by a script editor, because I don't think anyone else would have stuck his name in the script. So most of it was probably Gene's work, but it's very average and not terribly memorable. Now, I will give props on the production side to a member of the cast. For some reason, I can't put my finger on I really liked Broderick Crawford's performance more in this episode than I did Reformed Criminal, even though Reformed Criminal was a better, meatier script. He just seemed more on point this episode, snappy delivery, some well-staged action, 
He made all the rapid-fire police jargon and the dialogue seem somewhat natural. There were some weird editing choices. There were some odd pacing. And I kind of feel like maybe we're seeing someone else's fingers in the pie here in the editing stage. Either the script editing or the show editing itself. You know, since we're going to spend five minutes blowing up sticks of dynamite at the side of the road. You know, that brings up an interesting question. I'm glad that this... This is the point that I think maybe we haven't discussed yet, you know, in genealogy. Are we always expecting the Gene Roddenberry script? Are we always expecting to see that which we know Gene Roddenberry is famous for? And if we don't, does that necessarily mean that the project or script that he's working on is without merit or without quality? Because I think that... That's an undue criticism that we can levy from 70 years in the future. Yeah, I found myself wondering if maybe we covered Secret Weapon of 117 too soon. Because after that, we're expecting him to be functioning on that level. Mm -hmm. This is before that. And yet, Reformed Criminal worked on multiple levels and was much better than this story. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, because we are moving back and forth in time, you know, to try and facilitate covering these scripts for the reasons that we need to cover them in this particular time frame chronology, it's hard to see the consistency of his maturity level, like, emerge from, say, the secret weapon of 117 to reform criminal to here. And we're hoping that there would be a certain level of clout that would be able to, or influence that he'd be able to, you know, parlay with when it comes to being able to influence the quality of the scripts. But something about Human Bomb for me just never really landed. And I felt like we were always on the emergence of a great Gene Roddenberry script, but something got in the way. There was some interference along the way that never let it mature to this great moral complexity that we're used to seeing in Gene Roddenberry's scripts. Did you read the script first before you watched the episode? I actually watched the episode quite some time back, rewatched mm-hmm. it really with the script up on another screen. And I was following along because I was, since we have the luxury here with highway patrol of having both the show itself and the scripts, I've been viewing it like that so I can compare and contrast and point out, you know, fun little stuff like he tried to stick Roddenberry Road in there. Part of the point of this podcast is to try to find some of the places where Gene was starting to pivot toward the style that we associate him with later on from Star Trek. And the fact that we hit stuff so early on that seemed like it was close to that bar... I think it raises our expectations a bit, and perhaps a little bit unfairly. Because like Mm -hmm, I said, mm -hmm. he's still moonlighting when he is writing these scripts. So there are going to be times when attention is divided. I can certainly appreciate that. And he is still learning his craft here. We have to allow time for that to happen. We'll get there eventually. It's going to take him time to get to where he's consistently delivering the kind of script that we associate with him. But you also have to keep in mind, we're talking about a man who had a co-write credit on Turnabout Intruder, so let's not put him on a pedestal and expect too much of him. Well, sure. And I think that uh, we're looking at it from a standpoint of like the momentum that he's building you know, in his script writing, where, say, the episodes of Mr. District Attorney that we've covered, there was... I think, in my opinion, there was a more of a, a steady incline of quality than, say, right now with the two scripts that we've, you know, started off with, with, uh, you know, Highway Patrol, you know, with uh, Reformed Criminal, which I thought was like very signature style of Gene Roddenberry versus this one, which is more of kind of like a, a run of the mill. Um, and I don't want to say this, and I don't want to use this uh, as a in the wrong way, but kind of like a pedestrian type of script where. Anyone in the 1950s would have, like 1955, would have seen this and like, oh, yeah, this is fun. This is good. Next. And I think that from the standpoint of where we're looking at it right now in 2023, looking at Gene Roddenberry's work in 1955 or 1956, we have the luxury of saying 
that's not what we know of where Gene Roddenberry is going to be or where he is going to develop from or into. I think that's a little unfair. That's a, that's a disadvantage of the critique that we're supposed to levy on, you know, the, his previous works, you know, if we're coming at him in 1956 or 1955. So it's difficult, you know, to be able to say, well, that's not the gene that should be, but that's the gene that was, that's the gene that is right. And it's the gene that has to pay bills. It's the gene that needs to make money. It's the gene that has to compromise. You know, again, it's the gene that needs to make nice, nice, like with the powers that be, with the Frederick Zivs and the production companies that are going to hire him for the next script. So I get that. It's an interesting thing where we're looking at the dichotomy between uh, art and commerce, right? We've talked about this before, where commerce are scripts that sell, but art is something, a message that is interpreted in a certain way that allows you to get your message through something that as a writer is important. So it's a little uneven right now. And I think that we're at that crux maybe in his career. Um, This is just speculation on my part where perhaps there is going to be that turning point. And I think that turning point was the secret weapon of 117 where Gene's like, this is the story I want to tell. And now I'm making the money and have the clout to be able to support a family and actually tell my story. But that's about that's the part of the maturing process, right? And we're seeing that happen and merge in the style of this particular episode. And for me, it felt like it was more of a first draft than a final script because there were points in time in this this episode where like, there it is. There's the gene moment. Not really. There were these aha moments where like, oh, that could have been, but wasn't. But then again, that's the luxury of looking at it from 2023 to 1956. There's a scene where Bernie was telling Matthews about Jay's backstory. And he said that Jay's whole life was wrapped up in the company. He was one of their first employees. I don't blame them for letting him go, but dot, dot, dot. When you bring up a, uh, a scene like that, the dialogue like that, you can't just not follow that up. Because it's a huge part of like understanding Jay as a character. It's a huge part of our empathy as the audience towards Jay's character and why he's choosing to do what he's done. But I think that the most pivotal scene that we never really saw come to fruition was when Jay was talking to his hostage. Jay says to the boy, you like the science classes, boy? And the boy says, yes. And then Jay says, have you learned anything about electricity? And the boy says, please, mister. I don't want to talk about school. I just want to go home. And Jay says, are you afraid of me? And boy says, yes, sir. And then Jay says, I'll tell you something, something the cop back there understood. I'm going to trigger this. No one's going to stop me from that, but I couldn't do it with you in the car. Understanding that about Jay is, is huge because Jay isn't a murderer. He's not a killer. Right? He just wants to take the revenge on the people that wronged him. But he's not so far gone that he's going to take an innocent life. Certainly not this boy's life. This is that moral complexity that we're missing from this story. This is that moment where we want to see Gene really lean into that and say, this is what you should be paying attention to. And we didn't get that. We needed to know why Jay was fired from his job. We needed to know why he was who he was to facilitate the drama and the action. Because without that, we don't get the characterization. We don't get the emotional connection. We don't get the empathy and the understanding of why this guy is doing what he's done. Because a lot of us can identify with that, right? So that's where I think that this particular episode falls so short because what Gene is really successful at and where he was successful in, you know, the secret defense or the secret weapon of 117 is understanding the motivations of why these characters do what they do from the point where we can see the human connection in all of us. Without that, it's just good. With that, it is Gene. And I think that that's what we were missing. Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Mark Proct as Detective Dan Matthews and Adam Drosen as Harry Sellers. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. 
If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry Archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, Mental Patient. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.